Hello again, and welcome to Theft of Moon. This episode contains the completed version of the story that began with the previous two episodes, the entirety of which has become a first chapter in a longer story, which will be recorded and published periodically. We'll begin as you do with part one. Part two begins at 15 minutes and 39 seconds. And part three, which has not yet been published until now, begins at... 29 minutes and 23 seconds. Feel free to skip to that last part if you haven't heard it yet, and you heard the other two. May this transmission find you well and happy in a world of pleasure and intercommunal understanding. Without further ado, I present you with Necrobiotic Manufacturing Systems Review 032465PC, subtitled Where the Roots Hang Down. Look, I found something that is very dear to me. I've been searching for it. Inside is a story, something that I like. Be good and be thinking of for it. Like a bedtime part of it. <laughs> Sounds cool. The living are capable of enjoying themselves, of feeling pain. Thus they occupy the places of color, of light and shadow, sighing leaves and bold flowers, where the conditions are suitable for life. The living toil and take leisure. They observe and respect their surroundings. They take note of each other and their conditions. Dead labor does no such thing. The lattices of cellular material are left behind as the functioning biomass is washed out. Organic nanoparticles fill the spaces according to design to respond to stimuli in adjustable and predictable fashion. In this way, the discarded bodies of the living are provided to the productive forces to do the essential labor which is best done under inhumane conditions. There are many roads to the city of the dead. The one I took is a quiet little gravel and packed earth country lane, <coughs> which, led, which led from a pleasant and modest village roughly 12 kilometers from the entrance to the tunnel. Elderberries and maple provided a bit of shade from the summer heat and the road followed a lovely little creek as it made its way along the green wood. The bush thickened a bit as we left town, with less care being provided to the maintenance of the path, and poison oak wound its way up through the elderberries. But as we came along further, the older trees and the slopes brought a little bit of order to the madness, 
and under the canopy there were ferns and bear berries and all sorts of little orchids and mushrooms sticking out of the fallen logs. We approached the place where the spring disappeared under the rocks, and a dark hole in the mountain breathed its cold air into the gully. I hadn't until then realized how much the splendid forest had been keeping me afloat. Now my chest held in numbness, and I felt every inch of myself as if the different parts of me held on to each other out of fear. It's all very silly. A cat's meow broke the trance. There had to be roughly a dozen of them. They were gray and calico and black, and one that looked like a cat I used to know. They lounged on the rocks and the fallen trees around the entrance. People in the village talked about them. They seemed friendly, but would scratch you to pieces without fair notice. One of them trotted out of the tunnel and rubbed itself against my leg and I resisted the urge to pet it. The village was nearly empty of strays, because they were all here for some reason. I gazed down the tunnel and sighed. I kissed my partner on the cheek, double-tracked my water bottle. We said goodbye and I went into the mountain. New York is the new model for the new concentration camp where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves and the inmates are the guards and they have this pride in this thing they built. They built their own prison and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia where they are both guards and prisoners and as a result they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. The tunnel proceeds downward at a comfortable slope and the darkness enfolds me very quickly. Little oil slicks of bright translucence cross my empty vision as my mind tries to fill the space. I focus on my posture, my fingers grazing the wet sandstone walls, my feet gathering all the information they can from the wet gravel. Deeper in the tunnels, the walls are said to respond to living bodies by releasing a soft light. If this turns out to be true, I will not need to conserve my own torches, but I stay in the dark anyway, in case that's all nonsense. I'm not afraid of falling down some shaft. This entire complex is ADA accessible. It has to be, or none of this would work. <sighs> torches on. If you ever walk this tunnel, keep your torches on or your warm-blooded feet will collide with something cold and wriggling in the gravel, and you might even scream as something goes running down the tunnel before you can get your torch lit. An arm lays on the tunnel floor. It has no body, it has no hand, it extends and contracts stupidly, like a stumpy little worm. Both ends of it have been shredded by its endless motion. I stare at it for a while, until there are thoughts in my head again. This is not a production tunnel. This is an access tunnel. Why is this arm here? Was it making its way up to the surface? We've all heard stories about how one day the dead labor will climb up and swallow the living world. You might think this little arm, a first glimpse of the world below, is a vanguard of the silent hosts. Look closer. Look at the damage to its stumps, all the shredded skin flaps, the protruding bone, the chewable parts are depleting faster than the inedible parts. And I start to feel very chewable myself. 
I point my torch back up to the tunnel in the direction I came from. Two eyes shine back at me and meow. So much for the undead host. The village cats guard the realm of the living. The cat follows me for a little while. I watch it as it stalks a finger, inching along on some incomprehensible mission of its own, still wiggling in the cat's mouth as she trots happily back up the road. The torch exposes a solemn and simple rectangular shaft. There's not much to look at, so I listen to the crunch of the gravel as I clomp downward. The crunch is different further down. The gravel is wetter, but also full of little bones. It's so easy to forget how old everything is. A cat like that one, barely older than a kitten, could have hunted down the last remnants of your great-great-great-grandmother down here. Where were you Was it a place like this? The rest of the tunnel, I walk with the torch on, and only my thoughts for company. It ends in a round, flat-bottomed room with two wider arched passages extending to the left and right. The ceiling is a rough dome, a little under three meters tall at the walls, maybe four over the center of the room. Still sandstone, gray and beige, it looks like stalactites keep forming and getting knocked down before they grow too large or something. A foot wiggles its toes under the stumps of rock. Unsure of what to do next, I sit on my heels off to the side of the room and turn off the torch. At first, there's total darkness. Psychedelic tracers of the last thing I saw, my mind trying to see where my hands are, to imagine. And then the tracers become too exact, neons being edged out by pastels and softer nuances until I can see the details of my dirty hands. Yellow waterproof jacket, shiny white galoshes. I am fucking glowing. The walls are not glowing. I am glowing. I am the only source of light there is down here. It's disorienting. I illuminate my surroundings. It's been a long time since shadows were cast here. A major processing area is not far away. I pick a direction and go to meet the dead. The dead move in a horrible quietness. The shuffling of tattered footskin against the endless concrete simply disturbs the air and nothing more. Slight variations in barometric pressure provide no signal, only a side effect of the gradual disintegration of an operating unit. Spare parts hang lightly upon crumbling frames. A pair of legs carries cardboard boxes instead of a torso. Mismatched arms swing hammers and turn wrenches. Leather belts convey the products down the line. Turning barrels of teeth grind decaying material into a fine powder suitable for reprocessing. The intricate movements are inhuman. They're like ragged dolls. Every motion warns you that something is there. And at the same time, it's no one. I think this is why we stay away from them more than just the protocols and cybernetic persuasions. No one is there. You could be looking directly into the eyes of an aunt or an uncle, and it's just parts without a hole. This facility is a reminder of what we are. 
It shows us the difference between us and our parts. I tremble to think that someday my parts will be down here, shuffling around, doing all the little invisible things that need to be done for the sunny world outside. There's no up and down, except what your mind constructs. You have your own internal mechanisms, your inherited structural knowledge, and there's the sensory experience. Whether your eyes are lying, you can only guess by what your ears tell you. And furthermore, we are asked to acknowledge the personhood of others, using only these inadequate tools. There's nothing much for confirmation in any direction, and this is our only freedom from each other. This rattling can rolling down the hill. This is what it has chosen to be. How can I justify a change in its course without acknowledging the similarity in myself? I do not have the technical knowledge to explain the specifics of most of what is happening. They're all around me. They're stacked high on pillars of bone. They crawl across long nets to access production lines without disrupting the dense foot traffic on the floor below. Big carts full of kitchen supplies, garden tools, children's toys. I have come onto a packaging line. Down the conveyor belt come sheets of cardboard. On each side of the belt is a long row of arms. Some are endlessly folding, some endlessly gluing. Each step has an arm. On one end of the room, which turns out to be very large, is a series of holes from which teapots are grabbed and put on the belt in neat straight lines. As they cross the room, the teapots are wrapped and put into boxes for delivery. Then they go into the chaotic area where I first came in. That's where they get loaded into the tubes and sucked up to the post office. The vacuum tubes, which end in villages across the continent, all begin in places like this. Most refined products we use on a daily basis are built by the thousands. I watch the endless repeating motions, imagining the misery of a life spent doing this. It is for the dead, and it is only for the dead. Doing these things makes you dead. Living crafters still make unique gifts or some specialized niche gadgets, but mostly we send our designs to the libraries for everyone to share. At the library, anyone can peruse the collected works of our civilization and make a request for delivery. Down the tube goes a little slip of paper with holes punched in a pattern to identify the product requested. The tubes were always a little bit cold, weren't they? It's chilly down here. The thing that sorts the requests is a globby monstrosity. Protuberances like elephant's trunks extend radially from a wrinkled gray mouth. The requests are fed into the mouth and a spider web of flayed skin fans out behind it. This could be a nervous system or something. Somehow the information is processed in this thing and must be passed along these lines out behind it. Either mechanically or... Do the dead have nerves? Are their minds colonized and replaced by the same substances as their muscles? I can't allow myself to ponder the existence of any kind of consciousness here. It's too terrible. My grandfather had a spiderweb tattoo between his thumb and his index finger. I asked him about it once and he changed the subject. He had married late in life and had one child. In my memory, he's always dying. 
He was not as old as some people might get when they get to see old friends and forget who they are and what's going on. He should have had more time. My mother says he didn't take care of himself, that he smoked, he didn't take precautions when working with hazardous chemicals. She was right, but I suspect that she's also biased after taking such pains to keep her father-in-law alive. I think plenty of people lived harder and longer than Grandpa Tim. I was old enough to read, and he was sitting in a dilapidated old leather chair. He had a fuzzy blanket across his lap, tan with brown and orange triangles. That blanket looked like it smelled like tobacco, and it did indeed smell like tobacco. He's braiding together long strips of fabric scraps my mother could use to make a rug. He kept his hands busy, and he didn't even glance at his work. Instead, he would gaze at a point just past his feet and seem to have no idea what was going on around him at all. I was bored. My friends had all gone upriver with the Anthes to learn about the land up there, and I had to stay home because I had eaten a handful of soap moss on a dare and got terribly sick, but I refused to cop to it because the adults would think I was a child and treat me like one, which I was, and which they did, even though they thought I had food poisoning. Pops had gone to the post office to pick something up. Why do you have a fish on your neck? The hands didn't stop braiding, but the head crooked to one side, and he pointed his eyes towards the bored child in the sunny, dusty room. It's a dolphin. Why you got a dolphin on your neck? Why shouldn't I? It's a dolphin. Someday go see the ocean. Things are different on the water. Everything goes exactly wherever the fuck they feel like. A dolphin goes where it likes. Why not go on my neck? It's a nice tattoo. This seemed like a good enough answer. I imagined the dolphin balancing on top of my head. I looked at his hands, braiding. What happened to your back? You know that already, don't you? There's a big fight. I fell on a log. I got up, and there's a broken branch. I had to be two fingers wide. And he stopped braiding. He held up two gnarly fingers. Sticking out of my back like I'm a pretty little fir tree. Broke a rib. It healed weird. That's why it's like that. He's actually looking at me now. What's the spider web? He turned away and started braiding again. It is what it is. What's your dad coming home with? The movement of his fingers on the braid would make the spider web expand and contract like a fishing net. It was mesmerizing back then. It still is. Looking at it now, I've never been so fucking lonely in my whole life. The fabric had to come from somewhere. Such small threads and such massive numbers. So many intricate designs. Just a few well-practiced movements. Repeated endlessly on a long shelf of arms. Casting the net. Pulling it in. Fill the hole. Cast again. Maybe it's not even a spider web. But the hands. These are hands that wove in life. Is it accidental? What's left? 
What could it mean that muscle memory is a thing that matters down here? How much of Tim is here weaving that fabric? And how much of this place was already up there, braiding the strips of tattered old bedsheets? I watch his hands, and I have a desperate urge to respond in a human way to all this. But this is not a human place. I try not to think about my breathing too hard. My lung is casting, pulling, dumping, casting again. Everything is dead. I set my pack down gently and hike up my pants. As I crouch down and put my arms over my head, everything is dead. Trying to curl up into a little ball, because everything is dead. Trying to find a place to settle down and regain my footing. But I'm fucking glowing. My living skin is the only source of light in this whole place. And trying to turn inward is like staring at a lamp. I realize that I've been keeping as quiet as possible. I suppose some part of me is still a little child, believing ghost stories. The ghouls here are not going to attack me, even if they are capable of noticing that I exist. I can yell and scream and kick things and get in the way, and nothing is going to happen except for some ridiculous assemblage of appendages is going to try and pick up my mess. So I do that, and I feel a little better. I howl a bit. I gesticulate wildly. A long six-legged table goes walking by, stacked high with nice linens. I get right in front of it, and I'm going to knock it over when the room goes quiet. The hands have stopped weaving. The table is standing in front of me. The spider web stretches from finger to finger, accusing. I pack my pack. I walk quickly out of the room. It is time to go. I brought enough food and water to stay overnight, but I wouldn't know if it was one night or three. And I can't imagine eating here. What kind of idiot brings peanut butter to the city of the dead? It is time to go. I came to the fabric center from the packaging area through a furniture factory on the way. These rooms are so huge, it takes me at least five minutes to find my way back to the door, and then the motionless looms stand to my left, accusing me, and everything is dead, and I walk faster, and I hear the work continuing as I approach the door. I begin to jog, and then I run as fast as I can run quietly to the next room, and I turn the corner, and a dead woman in jeans and a white t-shirt is standing in the middle of the doorway, and I piss my pants. She does not immediately move. Her eyes are blue and gray, like dead fish. Her face is on crooked, and one of her arms obviously doesn't match the other. I wonder if they just assembled her. I'm convinced that this is the beginning of a losing fight. I'll hear slow, shuffling masses, unhinged jaws, unstoppable force, crushing me by weight alone. There's only one dead woman, though, and she croaks a whisper. Are you looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? I have no idea. Folks, there is an office. Should we be looking for it? What the fuck? What the fuck? I already wet my pants. I might as well find out where the office is. Perhaps there's an elevator. The uneven jaw clicks sideways. The t-shirt shifts slowly, settling into its frame. Otherwise... The dead woman is motionless. Yes, ma'am, I say. 
Her eyes are still pointed at where mine were when she last spoke. They shift to make contact again. All right, then. And she hobbles past me to a door behind the looms, and I follow. We walk along a gray tunnel. The walls are smooth, not raw rock. The floor is an ancient linoleum tile, cracked and peeling in some places, but mostly in good condition. It is a long walk, and then a door, which opens without turning the stainless steel knob. Reinforced glass on the window of the great door. Two large boxes full of screws, with lines of buttons along the side. A battered and greasy microwave. A sink with a large poster so faded I can barely discern the figures warning me to wash my hands. Ten broken chairs around two filthy cafeteria tables break room. We cross to another door. Another tunnel, this one lined with steel doors and windows. Behind the windows are cubicles. Most are empty. Some are occupied by tangles of arms, gooey-looking masses of blistering flesh. One simply contains a single ear, framed on the wall next to a wireless telephone headset. We come to a desk which seems to have been overgrown by a colonizing vine layer of fat globs and blood vessels, connected to a central stalk, which seems to be sprouting livers. Lots of organs around here. As we approach the desk, the livers rustle. A leg lifts its knee, extends a feminine calf. From the end of the foot, a rude tangle of tendons operates a pudgy and pallid hand. A drawer is opened. My dead companion speaks again. You hungry? The hand retracts. A bag of thin, transparent plastic clutched in its straining fingers. The bag holds a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I have not eaten in a while, and I am not hungry. It does not seem like a good idea to eat here. On the other hand, I barely understand what's going on, and it's always rude to turn down an offering of food. So, I say thank you. The bag is extended out to me. I reach over the desk to accept the offering. The livers sigh. A smell like roses and fresh rain and chocolate breaks through the piss and bleach reek of the room. I bow my head for a moment. When I look up, the dead woman is already walking away. I'm confused. Should I go with her? I ask the livers. They sigh again. It's sad, but assenting. A Sunday afternoon in the summer. A pond rich with frogs and muck. And time to leave to begin the week. I can't help but smile a little bit. Goodbye, I said, and I trudge after the dead woman. I run my hands over the thin plastic, feeling the spongy white bread beneath. We go around a corner and take a left, take a left again. Down the hall, cubicles, steel doors, puke yellow infrastructure. In each little box is a computer, sticky notes, file cabinet drawers. All of this is in various states of distress and chaotic realignment. 
Each cubicle contains an adjustable chair with wheels and armrests. The inhabitants, as previously noted, are recombinations of spare parts, fused together according to the logic of manufacturing and logistics. Notable examples include a face with fingers instead of teeth, delicately gnawing on a keyboard under translucent gelatin eyes. I keep passing a common format of a blob of flesh with two forearms sticking out of it, delicate swaying tendrils growing dendritically from the tips of keratinous fingers. Looks like seaweed growing on a rock. I can't tell if I'm underwater. I wonder how long I've been down here. I wonder what time of day it is. What day of the week. I follow the dead woman as she approaches the door. I like to play violin music. Here's a station. Music. I like to play violin music. Here's a station. Music. Here's a station. gently closed behind me, and all is quiet again. I am still for a moment, taking in the scene. A world of glass, infinitely fragile vines clutch the sides of transparent trees. Glass lions sit guarding the steps, leading up to a glass porch. It's like a winter world. A frozen image of a place, of my home, but it's all overgrown. Trees emerging seamlessly from the roofs of houses and spreading out to form a finely threaded canopy overhead. The yard is filled with crazy growth, bursting out of the ground. I am for some reason very inclined to believe that this place was grown, not made. Inside the glass, lights dance along the links in pulses, meeting with each other and finding new strength and direction. The whole room is a beautiful crystal dance, frozen in the middle of some unfathomable process, vulnerable and frail. The little path I walk along is the only space clear of the brush. The dead woman has deposited me here and left again back to wherever place she came from, be disentangled and spared of her parts. I have felt alone since I came down that first tunnel, but each new step is a revelation, a lesson in distance and solitude. The leaves of these trees seem sharp enough to cut me to pieces with a touch. I step carefully. There is something pleasant and soothing here, but it's also cold. I want to speak. I whistle. I find a harmonic note that resonates in the leaves. This path seems not to be going anywhere, just meandering among this bizarre recreation of the village. To find a nice stone bench clear of brush and smooth. I sit, take a deep breath. Up there among the living, the street is busy. The bakery gleams and carries my light into itself. Todd and Jesse's place is clearly marked. The glass bottles which always adorn the stoop appear here like barnacles sticking out of the steps. It's like somebody took all the substance out of the village, a diorama made of unsweetened and uncolored jello. It's kind of funny, kind of peaceful, an opium dream. 
I found a crystal bench engraved with words. Was it doubted that those who corrupt their own bodies conceal themselves? And if those who defile the living are as bad as they who defile the dead? And if the body does not do fully as much as the soul? And if the body were not the soul, what is the soul? Walt Whitman Sitting on the little bench, breathing easily for the first time since I came down here, I remember my stomach. I reach into my bag and look, how odd it is to be seeing two sandwiches and the bread is the same spongy wonder bread, with the same crunchy peanut butter squeezing out at the same points along the bread's edge. Two plastic sandwich bags, slightly worn, with the faded remnant of my initials on each. A pair of identical peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, sitting in my lap, one of which was given to me by my partner, whom I love, and the other was handed to me by some bizarre assembly of unliving tissues. I am so hungry. I sigh. I look at my feet. I stare at the base of the crystalline columns that surround me. Crude interpretations of the living world. Delicate and beautiful structures by themselves. But I imagine taking a bite out of them is not good for the digestion. There is so much here that I don't understand. I have an idea. I get up. I walk away from the bench, the sandwiches, the pack. I walk very slowly, casually. The shock of this place is wearing off. Shock, after all, is a sudden profundity of possibilities and the associated anxiety. With certainty comes calm, and I am at least confident that I am about to learn something essential about this place. My village has been my home all my life. I have traveled, certainly but never so long that I forgot how to get from Jesse's place to the farm, on a pitch-black moonless night and drunk to hell. I am surrounded by a rough estimation of my home. I will find my way to the pumpkin patch where I made my first appearance in the world. Our harvest day is in September. I know many villages plant later and harvest later. It's a delicate subject. There are so many variables in planting, and the reality is that we all have our own way. In my travels, I have even seen people who claim that they do not harvest at all, that they carry their children in their bodies, and when they burst forth in an atrocious flood of pain and blood. Such people who come into the world in that way would surely not balk at the catastrophic multiplicities of carnage and production that I've seen in this place. But it is only a peaceful and gentle people who turn their eyes away from the meat and struggle of life, and become stupid and weak like flower petals when the flowers are all gone to seed little squash flowers we would sing to them. We would come to the fields and lay with our lovers and talk to the vines as the pumpkins ripened, and we would bring little gifts and bury them in the soil and speak out loud the truth about ourselves in the best and most hopeful summer evenings. And in the fall and September, all the prospective parents would come to the fields from every household who wanted a child. And we would pick a pumpkin and bring it home. And I say we, because this is what we have always done, since before anyone can remember, since before writing, before Todd and Jesse took their little hatching knife and released me into the world. This is how they came into the world also. This is where people come from. And now I go to the pumpkin patch, 
to see the roots of those things, stretching down into the piles of putrid human garbage that isn't even worth putting to work here in this madhouse. Meat scraps and shattered bones are pierced with lines as fine as hair, leading back to the main arteries that feed the fruit above. I spot a pulsing organ, making sperm. I am calm, I am certain. My breath is even, and my hands are steady. My curiosity is quenched. And I walk home. It takes a while. Everybody asks me questions about the necropolis. I refer to them I refer them to these notes. I can't sleep. Spider webs like fine hairs tickle my skin. Once a thousand questions swam in my head, and now there's only the obvious road. This is the road. My hands will weave, my legs will walk, my brain will trickle along a little stream and join a crystal column of memory, thinking other thoughts, being other people. And until now, they were my hands, my legs, my people. Until now, they were people. And I'll take the low road to the coast, and I'll watch the sunset far out on the water, and I will go to the dolphins. I will go to the dolphins.